Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to stories of discipleship and putting Scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of just fewer than 1,000 churches throughout Kansas and Nebraska. I'm also a certified lay minister in the United Methodist Church, so what you hear on this show truly comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 25 years' experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teenagers to 90-somethings, and I served as a journalist for 20 years prior to entering ministry. So I'm excited to share with you stories of disciples in action and to explore with you what the Bible has to teach us in the 21st century. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes feature interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. Still others include short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. In this short series, we've been exploring the future of the United Methodist Church. With some knowledgeable guests, we've looked at where the denomination stands today. We've taken a look at the 50-year history of the human sexuality debate in the church. And we've looked at what it really means to disaffiliate from the denomination. This series is a ramp-up of sorts as we head toward a special session of the Great Plains Annual Conference on September 10th. That's where 55 churches are seeking permission to disaffiliate. There's no reason to think that the clergy and lay members to annual conference won't grant those requests. But this series has been a way of catching people up on a topic that may have gone unnoticed in some congregations or glossed over in others. If you're just coming across this series of podcasts now, I urge you to go back and listen to the four episodes titled Future of the UMC that are most easily found on my website, toddseifert.com. I should let you know that there may be one or two more episodes down the road a bit. For example, I had a great discussion with Bishop Cynthia Fierro Harvey from the Louisiana Conference, particularly about what she experienced as the chair during the 2019 Special Session of General Conference. Our discussion just didn't fit into what you're about to hear. A few weeks ago, I sat down in our Topeka studio with Bishop Reuben Sines Jr. He gave me an hour of his time, and we talked about everything from his hope for the United Methodist Church, why he chose to be UMC, complete with a video explaining his decision, and he even took time to answer a few questions that came into our conference office over the past few months. Our talk goes on largely uninterrupted, so let's get started. Here's my discussion with Bishop Reuben Sines Jr. I'm joined now by Bishop Reuben Sines Jr. He's been the Bishop of the Great Plains Conference in September of 2016, and then as of January 1st, 2022, he also took on the Central Texas Conference. It's been a while, Bishop. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. It's great to be back, Todd. We've talked with Reverend Adam Hamilton about where things kind of stand now, and we talked with Randall Hodgkinson and David Livingston about how we got to this point. Uh, as a bishop, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit here. Tell me a little bit about where you see hope with all the things going on in the, in the United Methodist Church, the denomination, all the challenges. Where do you see hope? First thing, Todd, is that people are praying more, right? <laughs> COVID helped us realize our own fragility and our own mortality, and also our inability to control things. So people took to praying and to reading the Psalms. And I think hope starts when we turn to God to look for answers and to look for guidance. So I, I see 
a more prayerful people. Secondly, uh, a lot of our churches began to reach out to the community in new, in new ways, simply because the doors of the church were closed. And so they became very innovative and they did things that they've always wanted to do, but just hadn't gotten around to it. And so they started to reach out to the community and, and really started to um, clarify their mission, their role, and their purpose in, in a hurting world. Uh, the next place that I see hope is that our lay people stepped up and deepened their own discipleship through, first of all, their vocations as essential workers and as frontline workers, some of them out of necessity and others because they just felt called by COVID to respond in deeper ways. And so they did that and provided the community's tremendous leadership. They also became much more generous uh, with their time, their talent, and their treasure. Mm -hmm. And leaders are not giving up. Churches are not giving up. They have shown incredible resiliency and a new sense of purpose and also COVID accelerated where we all knew the church would be at now. And so people are much more open to do things differently, maybe to examine some of the ways that we used to do things and modify them or let them go for, for newer things. And so the church is, is now ready to start its brand new chapter in this new post-COVID world. And I'm really excited about what we're seeing out in the field. I think you said a couple of things there that I want to expand on just a little bit. One of them being uh, people figuring out that some stuff is beyond their control. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we really like to control things, don't we? We do. We have that that issue. Uh, and and, and controlitis. That's that's right. <laughs> and we did learn because of COVID that that's beyond our control. And this this topic of human sexuality and the things that the denomination literally has been struggling with for as long as I've been alive. Right. Uh, is really beyond one person's control, it one is. church's control. Uh, it's a general conference, and it extends across continents. <laughs> so so it, it is truly something that we can't do on our own. I loved what you said about people are praying more, because yeah. I firmly believe that. More people have, because maybe of the concern with the denomination, mm -hmm. are trying to be more purposeful about their own relationship with God. And We can control that. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can pray, we can read scripture, we can attend worship, we can view worship online, we can find ways to serve others. That That is within our control. Mm -hmm. We can find times for silence, for meditation, for our Christian community. So that is within our control. And I think that's why we got better at it. Because <laughs> when everything else was not, that was. Right. Personal privilege here. I've got to say, you've done some amazing work at serving as a pastor for people on both sides of this issue within the Great Plains Conference. At least I can speak to that. Uh, and how we have people who are very much, on both sides, it's interesting to me. We have people who are, are very much of a different view on that topic. But people who are both equally dedicated to Christ, uh, love the gospel, love their church. Uh, you've had to do some amazing things to try to keep people together. Uh, tell me a little bit about what it is that you saw as your role as a bit, because you were elected right after all this stuff really hit the fan. Uh, what did you see as your role? And then we'll get into some of the things you've done directly in the Great Plains Conference to help people stay together and work together. So in 2016, many people already know the story. Uh, I was concerned about being elected <laughs> because <laughs> I knew what the church was headed toward. 
And you mentioned my pastoral role as a bishop. A lot of that has been thrust upon me. And I think as I reflect on, on my years as a bishop for the past six years, so much of it has been in a pastoral role because people have been hurt on, on both sides of the debate. And, um, and so I've had to, to find a way to offer comfort and encouragement, whether it, it's dealing with human sexuality or, um, you know, all kinds of crises well, or 2020 we, or COVID. We had COVID, we had, we had racial injustice issues. All, all happened at the same time. All of that. And then the fear about people's jobs or, or their, the security or insecurity of their jobs and, and so much going on. The, the, the church has been through a lot. And so I've had to really focus on, on, on letting people know that God lends us strength, hope, faith, uh, courage, resiliency, and, and so many resources. And, and it's sometimes just a matter of reminding people while at the same time taking hold of them ourselves when because we're, we're, we are in, we're all encountering the same realities. It's not like something that's happening to people somewhere else. We're all part of it. And so, so we are, as we receive, I think Corinthians says, that we receive a consolation from God, we then are able to console others with the same consolation we've received. And so mm -hmm. I find myself receiving that consolation of God in those desolate moments. And so when I receive it, I can share it because I know what it feels like, number one, and I want other people to experience it as well. I think some people have this view of bishops as once you're elected, you sit in an office and you, and you just like you just dictate things. You you move moving the chess pieces across the board. I'm gonna move this pastor to this church, and that's all that happens. But there's so much more that goes into it, and we've seen well, that. Even appointments are very pastoral. Mm -hmm. You know, you get the right pastor in the right church, and you match their gifts, and and that's uh, a pastoral strategy to to give the churches the right leaders so that they in turn. Uh, can be pastors to the community in the context where Christ has sent them to, uh, to make sure that people have enough provision, that they have, you know, what they need for life, and so and so that the church can seek the welfare of the communities where they're planted, which is an extension of the shepherding ministry of Christ to the people that Christ has sent the church to in His name, uh, mm -hmm. to offer life and and more abundantly not only here, but also for all eternity. So. Right. You said many times uh, that, I've heard you say this in many venues, you see yourself, you, you needed to be the pastor for people on both sides. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that people on each side were displeased with you. Of course. Because they wanted you to be totally in their court. Of course. Uh, for folks who don't understand why that was so important, tell us a little bit about why that was your philosophy going in. It's not my philosophy per se, it's just the way I'm wired. And, and like, I, like I tell people, I am tricultural, trilingual, right? I live on the border between the U.S. and Mexico. I mean, that's where I was raised. And so in the border, you have the conflation of various cultures, you know, um, um, inter in intersecting with each other. And so from that unique position, I'm able to see the richness of my neighbors to the south, and I'm able to see the richness of my neighbors to the north. While at the same time, I have my own sense of identity and place of belonging. 
And so, and because, because I, I have that tri-cultural mindset, I can see things and appreciate the goodness in, in both sides and at the same time some of the drawbacks while being able to maintain my own authentic position mm -hmm. in the center. And, uh, and of course, and I think part of it is also cultural. You know, I, I, have, I have four children. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I want for them to live in harmony with each other, to see each other, to love each other, even though they're not all the same. And so I think I, I bring that sense of responsibility for the well-being of the communities that have been entrusted to me to ensure that we might not all agree, but we are brothers and sisters and we share the same table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at, at this table, we, we're going to share a meal, we're gonna break bread, and we're gonna be the family that, that, that we are. And, and I, I guess part of it is just my understanding of, of family, which mm -hmm. is very, very strong. It's, it's, a, it's a very strong value for me. And, and I look at um, you know, organizations and whether I was teaching or coaching or, or, or in business, I, I saw my client base as those that that I was responsible to ensure that that I was providing the best service. And now as a, as a bishop or as a church developer, you know, I always, I don't know, I, I guess I've always felt personally responsible for the, the life of the people, the, the interaction of the people that have been entrusted to me. And so, and so I, I try to model that, number one, mm -hmm. and then try to create an environment where that can happen. And so not just in, in the annual conference, but, but beyond. So. Yeah, because you're not just a bishop for the Great Plains Conference no. and Central Texas Conference. You're a bishop for the denomination. Yeah. Sometimes people forget about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm also a bishop for the people that are shopping at Walmart that, that don't have right. a church home, right? They don't even, they that's don't know right. that I'm their bishop yet, but I, 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 I sense my calling to be their bishop even though they don't yet realize it. I'm, I'm a bishop for the unchurched also. We could get you a new name tag that says your bishop on it. <laughs> that's just, the world is my parish, right? That's what Wesley said. You and I, before the special session of General Conference in 2019, went on a massive road trip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we went to all 17 districts in the Great Plains Conference, 18 stops, because for those of you who don't know about the Great West Conference in Nebraska, I misspoke and didn't catch it. I mean Great West District. It's the size of a lot of states. Yeah. And so we did 18 stops, and you had a chance to hear from people on every side of this, both extremes and all those folks who are in the middle. Um, and you've since been out in those areas again. What types of things have you seen that have held true and things that are, are different in those contexts as you've gone around and, and talked to people and as you've seen people uh, who have wrestled with this topic for a while now? What kinds of things have you seen? I, when we first went out, um, of course there was a lot of anxiety that was right before 2019, remember? Right, right. yeah, it was before the special and, session. And so the three, the three uh, uh, plans had just been released by the commission on the way forward, Bishop's Commission on the way forward. People had a lot of questions. And uh, there was a lot of fear also about what, what was going to happen to people's churches. I, I think that the, that hasn't changed. I think in some ways it's been exacerbated. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, I do think that because people have had more time um, to, 
to process 2019 and all the fallout, and they've had more time to think about, well, you know, what would really change if we would leave the denomination? Not much. We'd still continue to be in the church, in our community, the way we always have. Uh, and, and I think for a lot of people, their anxieties have been tempered, and they've just decided just to be the church where they are. Uh, for others, you know, the, the debate still continues to, to pull them apart and to, and to divide them from the denomination for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So some things have changed. I, I really, when we were doing the, um, the, the district tours, I, I shouldn't have called them a town hall meeting. Because, you know, town hall, town hall it projects the image of angry citizens, you know, that show up at, right. a, at a civic center to, right. you know, yell and shout at, at uh, whoever the representative up there at the front is. I should have called it a church assembly, right? Yeah. It's more <laughs> biblical. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I really thought that the, the separation was going to be greater than what we're experiencing now at the Great mm -hmm. Plains Conference. At, at that point, uh, the, the intensity of of the uncertainty and the anxiety was pretty high. Mm -hmm. And I thought we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, you know, maybe lose 40 to 50%, but I don't, I don't hold that view anymore. I think maybe 10% of the, of the Great Plains Conference is gonna, is gonna uh, separate. And we're seeing a little bit of that happen, but I don't think it's gonna be on the, on the scale that I had first imagined mm -hmm. or that I experienced you know, when I was out there in front of the 5,000 lay people. Well, it's hard for, for folks who don't understand how that worked. What we would do is we would go to a town, one, one designation in each district, again, except with the exception of the Great West. District superintendents did an amazing job of assembling yeah. people together uh, to assist with each one of those stops. Uh, we had a presentation that the bishop gave, and we must have changed that presentation like every, every 15 times 18 out of the 17. We had 18 sessions, uh, 18 be, Because changes. every time we were somewhere, people would ask a question, and we thought, well, why don't we just build that in so people don't have to wonder about it? And so we, we always tried to bend and, 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 and help with whatever the next presentation was going to be. But you get a snapshot. Um, some people were very calm, and, and I would say actually most people were pretty calm, and they were just there to get information. Uh, but after the presentation was when people would come up and they'd have very uh, uh, oh, passionate, we'll oh, say, I, I got feelings. Bible studies, you know, right on the spot. People <laughs> told me what Scripture said and how it said it and what I would, needed to believe about it. One of the, the, the stories, I mean, I had many personal conversations. Um, i never forget, you know, one, one mother came to me after a meeting and she said, you know, Bishop, uh, my, my son is gay. And I told him that as long as he didn't change his behavior and repent of his sin, he was not welcome in our house. And so he knows what he needs to do to come back uh, into our household. Otherwise, he's got no place in our home. And, and, I, and I heard stories of that ilk, many of them. Um, and then I, I was at a, at a place up in, in western Kansas, and there were, I don't know, 500 people at the church. He was one of our better attendants. One of our better attendants, yes. And uh, and this man walks in, and it, it looked like he'd just come off the ranch, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so I thought he parked his horse out in the in, <laughs> in the parking lot. And uh, he said, "You the bishop?" And I said, "Yes, I am." He said, "Well, you know, out here in the West, we shoot straight." And I thought to myself, "I'm going to die. I'm going to get <laughs> shot, and I'm going to die right here." And he says, "You know, Bishop, I need to tell you something." He said, "My daughter came out to me uh, as being gay." And uh, she married my daughter-in-law, and they now live in Seattle. 
and I love my daughter-in-law, um, and I've changed my mind about things. So if you get into trouble, just know that not everybody here is of the same mind, and I'll be sitting right over there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but again, the, 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 as people are processing you know, how they are going to respond to the LGBTQAI plus community, some mm -hmm. of them who, you know, who they had no associ association with in their lives or who were members of their family or their friends or their neighbors or their coworkers, you get a, you get a sense for where people are and the struggle that people are having with, with uh, thinking in different ways. Mm -hmm. and it, it's hard work. And, and I think the, part of the challenge is that people want very simple answers to very complex questions right. without doing a lot of the work that it takes to gain an understanding of the whole issue and also a position of humility to think I might be wrong right. about this and what if I am wrong or and or so, have I not thought of this in a different way exactly before? Yeah. exactly and so right well you bring up an interesting point you know people have to struggle with this mm -hmm. um, uh, to get to a point where they can at least decide for themselves where they actually stand on it right um, You've been quoted before as saying you're your best when there's a problem to solve. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that energizes me. Um, but, but this is a problem that, like we said, yeah. one person can't yeah. fix. My question is, though, how do you stay grounded? I mean, everybody looks to you for leadership and guidance, and they expect you to be this example. Yet you've got to keep yourself grounded uh, to be of any use to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, what kinds of things have you done in this liminal season that we're in uh, to keep yourself grounded and, and, and your spirit at peace. I was reading a book by Walter Brueggemann on the prophetic imagination, right? And a prophet was not some, well, prophets did go and confront power individually, but oftentimes prophets spoke on behalf of the people that were hurting. They were, they were spokesperson, not just for the Lord, but for people that didn't have a voice. And when they spoke, they did not speak on their own behalf. They spoke on behalf of the Lord, normally for mercy and for justice. Uh, and and they, they represented the cries of the people. And so one of the things that I do to stay grounded is I try to listen to people, I try to, I try to read, I try to understand where people are coming from. And, uh, and then I, I take it to prayer and say, you know, Lord, these are your people. How how can I help them be fully human, be fully alive in Christ, uh, even when I don't understand? And so, part of part of the grounding is is humility and de radical dependence upon God, and just loving people and wanting to be part of a church where people feel safe welcome and loved and where they belong and I think I'm getting clearer and clearer about that as as the years go by what is my role as, as a Episcopal leader to help create a church fashion a church uh, where people can experience the risen Christ be transformed by his power and grace and um, and live their life in relationship to him in the world in, in a way that that is meaningful and purposeful for them in the now and also for, for all of eternity as we know. And I know that's your, your absolute deepest passion. Um, 
you've been very clear from the very begin from the first time we talked, if I remember correctly, talking about how you know what if, if everybody if people want to leave, if there are some people who want to leave, you want to make sure that they're in the best possible position to be successful wherever they go, wherever they land, because this isn't an us versus them. No. This is a we're for the kingdom. <laughs> uh, we're, we're we're here to help proclaim Christ. Uh, help people know God and then serve others and seek justice. Uh, what are some of the things that you've had to purposely do to help the Great Plains Conference um, keep that culture, keep that mindset so that we, we've been very lucky here. I'm going to knock on wood. That knocky here is me knocking on wood. Uh, we've been very lucky here that we have not had a lot of, of uh, drama right. uh, to this point. Doesn't mean there hasn't been some hurt uh, because there is whenever somebody wants to leave. Uh, but the reality is we haven't had the kinds of things we've seen in some other conferences. That's not to say yay us and, and boo them. We've just been blessed in that, in that regard. What are some of the things you've tried to do to help people stay together on that, on that wavelength anyway of if we've got to part, we have to part. We want everybody to stay, but if they're not going to stay, how can we best help each other so we can continue the mission? First of all, I don't frame this into a winner and loser mm -hmm. binary um, framework and so I think if, if, if I can extrapolate myself from mm -hmm. I won or I lost then then the question is how do we together move the mission forward I think also I, I would attribute so much of the strength of the Great Plains and and our ability to do this amicably uh, to leaders such as Adam Hamilton and David Livingston Rick Just Stephanie Allsweed, uh, and, and so many, 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 many more who have not amped up the rhetoric, but have really uh, sought to create understanding and articulate an appreciation for the position of the other, even though they don't disagree. And so I really think that the Great Plains Conference as a whole, our clergy and our laypersons, have modeled what civil discourse is and what dialogue is. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, language, Todd, can, can um, ignite and accelerate, you know, uh, divisions, or it can heal. And I, and I really would like to celebrate the healing language and the hope-filled language of the leaders of the Great Plains Conference, starting with the conference staff, with Scott and yourself, uh, Dee, uh, the cabinet, uh, you know, the congregational excellence. We're, we're here to help expand and enhance the, the ministry of Jesus Christ throughout the boundaries of the annual conference and beyond. It hurts when people leave. I, I, I don't think that, that this issue is, is enough to, to separate the church. I think within 20 to 30 years, we're gonna be looking for each other again to unify just like it happened in 1844 over the split between Methodist Episcopal South mm -hmm. and the Methodist Episcopal Church over the issue of slavery. It took a long time, but the churches came back. And, and I think within 20 to 30 years, the next generation is not going to care one-tenth one as much about this issue as the current generation does. Mm -hmm. And in order for the church to see its way forward, it's, it's going to have to to, uh, to move past this in a way and, and allow for a theology that's large enough to, to, to not claim certainty, but an openness to something that God might be doing. 
And so, and so some of the things that we've done, I mean, one of the first appointments that I made my first or second year was to a traditionalist pastor to a, to a traditionalist church. And at that point, it was right after 2019, and, and, and there was already signal that, the church, that this church was going to be the denomination, probably one of our first two or three that left the denomination. And I told the pastor, I said, you know, I'm appointing you, but I know that in a year, you and I are going to be having a conversation about your, your church that I'm appointing you to wanting to leave. And sure enough, within a year, he called me and says, we need to talk, we want to leave the denomination. And when I sat there with him and his church council, I said, you remember that I told you that I was appointing you here with the full knowledge that you were going to leave the denomination out. But you know what? I care about this church. I care about the ministry of the church and the community. And, and I, I wanted to, to give them the best opportunity to continue being the church, mm-hmm. you know, um, as, as they see fit. And so, and by the same token, I've appointed people to more progressive churches. And, and I was going to say, we're obviously not going to get into names here, but I can tell you firsthand, you, you put traditionalists in some traditionalist churches because that gave them the best opportunity to yeah. succeed. And there have been some pretty progressive folks that you've put into some center left churches mm-hmm. uh with that same fitting so right we I, you know the the appointed process is uh is a is a beautiful process it's a discernment process but at the end of the day we know we have had a good appointed season a year two years after the appointments made when we see that pastor flourishing with that church in the community i i never i never assess the effectiveness of appointments when we're finished in that calendar year. I assess the appointment two, three years down the road. Right, A- after something's actually happened. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. and, and I would say that probably 90% of our appointments have been, have been good because we, we've done a good, a good work with the help of the Holy Spirit of discerning mm-hmm. the right people <laughs> for the right mission field. We don't get it right all the time, but, but for the most part, I think you know, God has been our help. You released a video earlier this year uh, as part of the BUMC campaign, uh, and you explained for people why you were going to remain in the United Methodist Church. Uh, people can go watch that video if they'd like. We'll put the, the, the uh, URL in the, in the show notes so people can go watch it. But uh, from Cliff's Notes version, uh, what was it about uh, the BUMC campaign that you decided you wanted to be part of it and let people know that you were going to remain in the United Methodist Church? My daughter's birthday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter Christina had a birthday after tw- in 2019, uh, in October, and of course 2019 we're, we're still trying to assess what happened in 2019 in St. Louis, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the air, and and Maya wanted to get Christina a a pendant, and so we we buy stuff from a a, a jewelry manufacturer, silversmith. I'm not going to mention their name. I don't want to give them. But uh, for but, folks who don't know, the bishop used to own a jewelry store. Yes, so, I did. So he's, he's got a little more knowledge about this than the average person. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and anyway, this jeweler uh, makes Methodist crosses in silver. And so Maya said, I want, we want to get Christina a United Methodist silver cross. And I like, well, will there be a United Methodist church or not? Maybe this will be like, like a... Uh, uh, one of those antique treasures, right? That'll right. point back to a day a, a day gone by, and so we went to the store, and I I, I got the uh, the charm uh, the, the the pendant in my hand, and I looked at it, and at that time I said, you know what? I am United Methodist. I'm a United Methodist bishop, and there will be a United Methodist church for my daughter and my grandkids and my great great grandkids, 
And at that point, I just determined that I was going to be United Methodist. The, the, the issue with that in 2019 is that I didn't have to declare that I was going to be United Methodist because there was no other option. Right. Now, when the launch of the new church The Global Methodist Church opened up uh, officially May 1st. Then at that point, I couldn't remain impartial anymore. I had to... Uh, and, 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 and I don't think I would have made that video necessarily if I was just the bishop of the Great Plains Conference. The bishop explained to me that his role as bishop of the Central Texas Conference prompted his decision to make the video explaining why he was remaining in the United Methodist Church. A larger percentage of churches has chosen to disaffiliate there, and the bishop explained that the people who wished to remain in the UMC, even after their church left, needed to hear that they were not alone that their bishop was going to be there to support them, to nurture them, and to work to provide a means for them to stay connected to the denomination that they wanted to remain a part of. Had I only been the Bishop of the Great Plains, I might have never felt the need to make that video because I didn't think I had to define myself as such. Mm -hmm. In the Central Texas Conference, with, with so much turmoil, I had to put a stake in the ground because there were a lot of United Methodist clergy that that needed somebody to say there's there's a person that that is going to lead us well they may have felt like they were kind of out there on their own exactly gave you an opportunity to it, to it, say it, i'm with you exactly exactly uh, and, and i know there's a rally uh, folks really rallied around that it I was mean, amazing scott yeah. i uh todd i got letters from all over the country from, from people that I didn't know, from seminary professors, from uh, for, uh, bishop colleagues, from laypersons in different annual conferences. I mean, I was overwhelmed by the response. I mean, and for me, I was just just being kind of matter of fact. This is who I am. I, I am I've been shaped by the United Methodist Church. I've studied the doctrines of the church. Uh, and I hold and holy agreement with the doctrines. I believe that the Old and, and uh, New Testament are inspired by God, and they are the Word of God. And I study them, and and uh, I I agree with the polity of the church, our governance, and and so it was very basic, but obviously it was something that people needed to hear. And mm -hmm. so, I, you know, it was it was uh, it was a gift. I think it took me, I don't know. Well, you know, because you helped me with some of the drafts. I, <laughs> I probably spent around 40, 40 to 50 hours just writing that. Draft. Writing, rewriting, throwing out sections, throwing out, throwing sections. out the whole thing, yeah, coming back yeah. to it. Yep. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a work, but I felt called to do that at that particular time. And then, you know, it, it, really, it really gave people a sense of, of not having to apologize for being an United Methodist, Todd, mm -hmm. because... All of a sudden, the United Methodist Church was kind of backed up into a corner, and we were having to apologize for being United Methodist and, 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 and put ourselves in a defensive posture when the United Methodist Church has been in the country for over 200 years. We got hospitals, universities. We got all kinds of, of humanitarian aid. We got UMCOR. We're, we're, we're 12 million people throughout the world. You know, we, we're a global organization. Uh, we, we're champions for children. And all of a sudden, we have to explain ourselves and give an apology. And, and so part of that was like, no, I, I, I need to not make a defense about the United Methodist Church, but just affirm who we already are. And, and, uh, 
and, uh, and, and assert that we've been here for 200 years and we'll be here for another 200 years. And, you know, we got a lot of mission and ministry to do. And I'm proud to be part of this movement that is, that is going into a new reiteration of itself that I think is going to be greater than what has happened in the past. I really do. And again, you can do all of those things and still work with the people who exactly. are not of the same Exactly, vein. exactly. Yeah, and uh, and uh, again, okay. So Todd, when I was when I was ten years old, okay, uh, Cesar Chavez was uh, was marching with La Raza Unida and La Huelga uh, to advocate for farm worker rights. At that time, you know, migrant children would go to six, seven, eight different farms along the California Washington route. Uh, and you know, pick peppers and onions and you know, you name it, mm -hmm. whatever. And, and some of these migrants lived in squalor. Uh, they didn't have proper education. They they had to buy at the company store with money that they got paid. So you know, their their money didn't stretch very far. Uh, sometimes there were reports of them getting sprayed by pesticides in the fields and things like that. You know, because they were just. Dispensable and disposable people, you know, that, that were just helping. And so Cesar Chavez went through our community, and our pastor marched with Cesar Chavez. Okay? Um, in our, it, because I was raised, I, I grew up in a, in a bilingual church. I mean, I grew up, half of the church was Anglo, half of the church was, you know, Anglicized Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the union went down there in the 1900s to set up a fort against the invasion, you know, from the south. And anyway, so they stayed there and they intermarried. So I grew up in a very, uh, in a very um, interculturally mixed society. I, I did not grow up with this side of the tracks is where the Spanish live and the others live on that side. I did not grow up in a segregated community. So segregation is, is, is not... It's not something that I grew up with, well, like a lot of other people did. So my mindset is very different, you know, to, to begin with. But, but one Sunday, the farmers got up and announced to the church that they were leaving the church and they were joining the Southwest Texas Conference. So half of the church got up one Sunday and they left because they, they felt that the pastor should not have marched with Cesar Chavez because the church shouldn't get involved in politics. And I was a little kid, man. I was 10 years old, and I said, this is going to be interesting, right? <laughs> and, so, and so they got up and they left. And they already had plans to start their own church and everything in the same community. It was a small church, and I was divided by half. Well, I kind of broke into the circle of, of the leaders who were talking, and people turned to Dad and they said, what are we going to do? Half of the church just left. Our leaders left. Our money left. You know, you know, how are we going to make the church work? And, you know, and, and I, I praise God for, my, for the witness of my dad. He says, well, we are the church. We're going to step up in a leadership. We're going to give. We're going to serve. And this church is going to, is going to continue to move forward. And, and it has. And I'm a product of that church. But I remember that, that the witness after that horrible, I was like, what in the world happened? Why did, why did they leave, <laughs> right? It was, broke my heart. But just to see the resolve of the remaining church to say we're going to be the church, I, th I think I hold that in my heart. And so God bless them. You know, the obviously, you know, they had their reasons. Fifty years later, 
almost 60 years later, now the two churches are sharing a pastor. And there's talk about reunifying. And I'm thinking to myself, 60 years of lost opportunity mm-hmm. where they could have worked together, blessed each other, done more together, given a witness to the community, but instead they decide to go their separate ways. And on one hand, we celebrate the fact that the ministries have endured for 60 years, but on the other hand, we lament the fact that so much mission that could have been done and the witness of having an integrated, multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic, multilingual church as, as a standard for a, 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 a fractured society was wasted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess people say that we're shaped by, by the experiences of our life. And that's one of the experiences that, that, uh, that I hold on to. First of all, the church does have something to say about what's going on in the world. And mm-hmm. I'm proud that our Great Plains churches and congregations and pastoral lay people do. Uh, and secondly, you know, um, division is not the answer because it diminishes all of us. Without the other, we're less. Um, so, you know, I, I guess at the core of my, of my vision is the apostolic vision of Jesus Christ that creates a new humanity where all the dividing walls of hostility are broken down and there's no longer Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor snake or free, but all are made one in Christ. And that drives me. And I'll continue to seek that vision. And, and if my sisters and brothers want to depart, that's their decision. Uh, that's totally their, Nobody's forcing them out. It's something that, I will tell you this, there's going to be a lot of harm done. You talk about pastoral spirit, there, there's going to be a lot of harm done. There already is a lot of harm done. There's, you, there's people that are going to want to remain with the United Methodist Church. They're going to find themselves on the outside looking in. We're going to find a way to keep those people connected. We're going to find a way to keep those people uh, in community to continue growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we're going to continue to bandage up the wounds because there is a balm in Gilead, believe it or not. And that balm is Christ, and we're going to apply it every which way we can. I was going to ask about that. We don't have the firm plans yet, but things are definitely in the works. Um, internally, we talk about the remnant, or at least that's the word I've been using. I shouldn't say that for everybody. It's for me. But we are going to have areas where churches disaffiliate. There are people who want to remain in the United Methodist Church, but their church is no longer there. It's gone, and there may be miles upon miles upon miles to get to the next closest United Methodist Church. What do we do for those folks to make sure they stay connected with the church that they really want to be part of? Um, And I know the Cabinet is working on on plans with that, uh, with us, the communications team, about what we might be able to do to help people stay connected. Uh, another thing that COVID helped us is we realized that we can do mm-hmm. technology across, yeah. <laughs> even That's in the true. western parts of our two states. That's true. Uh, there's a stereotype that you can't do anything out there because of, of uh, it's too rural. Well, we know that's not true. Uh, there are challenges in some place, some spaces, right. but but not everywhere. Uh, and so for those of you who are listening, you may be wondering what's going to happen with that. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're not quite ready for that yet. We're, we're working on it. I, I imagine it's going to be part of the cabinet retreat discussion that's coming up here in a few it weeks. Will be. <laughs> Uh, because it's not just us. The, our friends in the Central Texas Conference are going to have that same problem. And every, I think every annual conference is going to have a challenge with that, other than maybe some of those really urban, heavy areas. The good thing about it, Todd, is that a lot of our churches, not just the larger churches, but they have the technology and the platforms to be able to receive people virtually online. Mm-hmm. 
it's just a matter, and that's where I'm really excited about with Jeff Klinger and, and you know, Congregational Excellence and, of course, what your department is going to do to help create those platforms to keep people connected. I know Hanyu has been working on a, uh, uh, a video platform that is going to be used, and so we're, we're ready. We're ready for this next iteration. We do. He's talking about Eugenio Hernandez. He's our multimedia production specialist, developed a, a, an online live stream platform. Uh, there's more information on that at greatplainsumc.church. Normally, I would say .org. We kept it as close to the regular URL as possible, so greatplainsumc.church if you want to learn more about that. Uh, we'd love to have more people take part in that uh, uh, as a means of, of helping them reach people beyond their doors. Bishop, before we let you go, uh, there's a couple of just tidbit items that I want to touch on. Uh, as we get closer to our special session of annual conference, September 10th, we have folks who have asked some questions that maybe they don't understand what's happened before or maybe they've gotten some bad information. We just kind of want to make sure they understand what's going on here. So there, I got basically just three questions that we'll they'll touch on. Um, the first one is there's been some misunderstanding that we're going, the United Methodist Church is going to abandon the doctrines of faith. Uh, I wanted to get your feedback on that as somebody who's in the room when the Council of Bishops is talking. When I was 21 years old and I had my encounter with Christ at 2 o'clock in the morning in Nacogdoches, Texas, one of the, the most present and powerful thoughts I've ever had in my life that ran through my mind and, and the core of my being was Jesus is alive. I can't explain where it came from. I cannot, you know, uh, give a rational defense for it. It is, it is just a way of knowing, a spiritual knowing, a, a revelation, so to speak. And if Jesus is not alive, I would not be here today, okay? And, <laughs> and so the idea that people are denying the resurrection or the, or the virgin birth or the Trinity or, or things like that, I mean, people are always gonna have theological questions. I think, I think to have faith and, and doubt is part of our, our growth, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we have to examine things, but when we come back around and, and we appropriate them and make them our own, not just because we've just internalized it because somebody told us that that's the truth, but we really examine it, then it becomes part of our, 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 our core, part of our values, part of our, our, uh, our worldview, part of our way of seeing the world. And so the, the United Methodist Church is not gonna abandon the, the doctrines, the classical doctrines about the Trinity, the, the work and person of Jesus Christ, the atoning work on the cross, the power and work of the Holy Spirit, the church, the resurrection, you know, the forgiveness of sins, you know, come on. Uh, it, it's just, it, again, it's just rhetoric designed to drive a gap and get people to cross over to, from, from one side to the other. It, it is disingenuous, it is harmful, and it's going to do spiritual harm to people because it is showing them how to distrust others. And of course, it, it benefits those that want people on their side, but eventually you, you harvest what you sow. So these things have a way of showing up again mm -hmm. in, in your own organization because you've trained people how to distrust and how to how to despise and how to uh, diminish and horribleize the other. 
and you cannot plant those seeds and expect a good harvest. I, I just don't think you can. Another question that's come in, um, is it guaranteed that every church is going to have to vote on whether to stay in the United Methodist this Church is, or not? This is the, my, my brother, my brother, the bishop's brother, called me and he said, when do we need to vote on leaving the church? I said, what, what, explain to me what you mean. He says, well, I hear we need to vote. I says, are you gonna be United Methodist? He said, of course. I said, you don't need a vote, Rick. You know, you don't need to put it to a vote. What I find is that churches that are voting are oftentimes led by pastors who want to leave the denomination. Pastors that are not leaving the denomination are not leading their churches to take a vote. So, the, and this, this to be clear, the, the decision of a pastor to leave the denomination is their own personal decision and nobody's stopping them from surrendering their conference membership and going to become free Methodist or start their own church or, or do something else. Nobody's stopping them. But the pastors that are wanting to do that oftentimes know that if they don't take the church with them, they don't have a job. And so they're trying to get the church to leave with them so that they can land somewhere. And a lot of churches feel that they don't have a say-so. And many of them, you know, they, they, they love their pastor and they want to follow their pastor. But, but let me, I, I'm going to tell you what I told a pastor that was taking the church out. I said, I want to tell you what's going to happen to you, my friend. Number one, you're going to quit on the church, okay? Because you're just going to get frustrated and there's nothing holding you accountable to that church. You're, now your relationship to that church has become employer and employee. You're the employee of the church now. You're not a member of the annual conference. You're an employee. So you, you or they could, the church can fire you. Or you can serve, you're 61, you can serve for three, four more years until you retire, and then you retire. Then the church is going to have to go and find their own pastor. Or the fourth thing is you'll die. The thing about a connectional system is that, and so you're, you're being very short-sighted in, in, your, in, your, in your stewardship of the church because you're only looking at them as a means for your own personal future needs. But once you're done with them, they're on their own. That finding the pastor thing I can relate to because I grew up Baptist and, and the pastor who I grew up with retired and it was the better part of three years before we had a full-time pastor again. It took that long yeah. to find someone. Um, I don't think people understand how difficult oh, that can believe be. Believe me, believe me. Some people do. I understand. Some people have thought all this through. I don't want to. Ma I don't no. want to do that. I don't want to make a blanket statement. Um, but there are a lot of folks, based on questions we received in the conference office, that tell me that some folks haven't thought this through. Here's my illustration. I, honest to goodness, have received phone calls and emails from people asking, "How do I access conference resources after I'm no longer part of the yeah. denomination?" Yeah. The answer is you don't. Right. <laughs> that I mean, that's the that's the sad reality of a separation. Um, so because of my background and because of what's happened, I've gotten personally phone calls and emails, and it's not like it's been a lot of them, but there have been a few that lead me to believe, wow, some people really haven't thought this through. I know, and and I think there's going to be some remorse, especially when churches find themselves without the 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 strength of the connection for whatever reason, right? And and you know some churches. They they have they have uh, they have decided to leave the denomination and their you know their their intention about coming back is is 
um, it's not even a question. I mean, they, they're pretty resolute in, in their desire. Um, but, but so many others, I think, are being, you know, um, caught up in this process that, first of all, they don't know what's really happening, and secondly, they think that they don't have a choice. And they do, as lay people, who many, many of them, you know, their grandparents, their parents, their, their family members, their friends have been a member of that church for, for, for generations. Some churches are 150, 180, 50 years old, and, and they'll be around long after this generation, you know, moves on to the church triumphant, or long after that pastor moves on. And so the connectional system, it's not perfect. We know it's not, but at least I know one thing. <clears throat> you know, there, there'll be another pastor in that pulpit after the beloved pastor retires or gets reappointed or, you know, or... or uh... The bishop is about to bring up two terms that you need to know. One is the trust clause. This is a clause in the denomination's polity that means the property of the local church is held in trust for the annual conference to which it belongs. It's a focal point of the LGBTQIA plus discussions because churches that want to leave usually don't want to start completely over. They want to take their property with them, the property that they've cared for for years. A second term has come up before, paragraph 2553, or just the numbers 2553. If you don't remember that term, it refers to a paragraph approved for the Book of Discipline during the special session of General Conference in 2019 that provides a process for churches to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church if they are doing so due to disagreements on human sexuality. It's only active until December 31st, 2023. Or whatever, um, and, the, and the ministry will continue. I think that's why Wesley, Wesley was really, he wanted to, for the churches to enter into a trust clause because he wanted to make sure that that whatever happened to the pastor, there was going to be a United Methodist presence in that community, you know, in perpetuity. Um, but, you know, now 2553 paragraph has given the churches the the opportunity to, to disaffiliate with their property and their assets and everything else. And so, like, like I said, I mean, I, I wish them well. But at the same time, we don't want to close the door. Um, they're always welcome back. And so... And I'm sure many of them will will seek to um, to unify, not in the near future, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. <laughs> Who knows? Last question I want to ask you came in, and this, this is one of those, when, even after, if there are disaffiliations, well, there are disaffiliations, but after everything, the dust settles. Uh, we're still going to have people who have different philosophies on human sexuality within churches that stay. Uh, and so one of the questions is, if a church really doesn't feel that it can accept an openly LGBTQ pastor, will they have to do so? No. However, I will say that uh, pastors that are appointed have been properly vetted by the district committee and ordained mm -hmm. ministry. If they come the, local, the licensed local pastor route, uh, if they come through the ordained route, then they will be properly vetted by the board of ordained ministry. And, uh, and these are women, mm -hmm. uh, clergy of color, uh, LGBTQIA plus persons. And, and, the, and the role of the, of, the great, of, of the Board of Ordained Ministry is to examine and to see if the people, if the, these persons have a calling of Christ for the set-apart ministry. 
and if they have the gifts and graces uh, for ministry, and if their views are in line with the doctrines of the church and the expectations of clergy. Um, and so, you know, by the time people come through the appointed process, you know, there, there's a lot of other considerations that, that the cabinet, and I especially as a bishop, take into uh, account. I'm definitely not going to appoint someone to a church where they are going to be harmed, mm -hmm. you know, because they're not going to be received. And, and this goes, I mean, sometimes appointing a traditional pastor to a progressive church might be harmful to that pastor, right? right? Because they might just not be received. Or appointing a progressive pastor to a more traditional church, th that might cause harm and tension. Uh, sometimes, in, in some churches, I mean, I, I even, you know, ask the question, is this church ready to receive uh, an ordained woman? Because I definitely don't want a church that's not ready to receive the gifts and graces of a woman to, to, to mistreat her, disrespect her, because they believe that women shouldn't be in ministry. And, and we, there are some churches that, that hold that opinion, or a person of color, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to send a person of color into a congregation uh, or a community where where they're going to be at risk. And, and now, sometimes for missional purposes, we might. If if a I, church, I, I was going to say, it's not like you're never going to do that no. be, because there might be very good reasons to help a church grow by and reach the mission right. field that the church is not currently reaching because right. they need somebody that reflects the mission field. And, and so and so we made I made those appointments as well. But uh, to do it just for the sake of doing it without any missional purpose or reason for it, no. And, and, and here again, Todd, it's not like, you know, all the clergy are women or people of color or LGBTQIA. I mean, so this idea that every, path, every church will have, and again, that's rhetoric mm -hmm. meant to inflame and, and exacerbate fears and broaden the gap in the division to get people to cross over to the other side. And um, it's, it's not accurate. Bottom line, what Bishop Sines has said many times, this is all about the mission. It's all about the mission. Bishop, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of In Layman's Terms. Uh, this has been an interesting series to work on, uh, uh, trying to figure out the future of the United Methodist Church and taking in a bunch of uh, different folks just talking about where we are now, what happened before, where we're going. Um, I know this, just like we end, we're going to end, like you said, we, we when you first started this, it's all about prayer. It's all about prayer. <laughs> more, more prayer. Uh, yeah. That's something that we've all learned and we need to do more of. So, Bishop, thanks again. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for your work and uh, your ministry. concludes what I anticipated to be a four-episode short series on the future of the UMC. As I mentioned in the opening, I do expect to have another episode or two down the road a bit because of other great discussions I've had that just didn't fit into these episodes for one reason or another, usually due to time more than anything else. I hope that you found these four episodes to be educational, fair, and that you've gained some insight as to the history of this ongoing debate, the current state of the church, what it means to disaffiliate, and what the hope is for the future of the UMC. My prayer is for wisdom, strength, and courage for all involved, that regardless of where things land, that God will find us faithful to the mission that God has given us as followers of the risen Christ. May we all reach different people with the gospel. 
Because no matter where we stand on human sexuality concerns in the church, I think we all can agree that the world would be a much better place if more people knew about the love and life-changing grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. Blessings on the ministries of all who are listening. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you like what you've heard in this episode, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps others find us. And if you're so inclined, please share the link to this podcast on your social media channels. Our music and sound effects come via subscriptions to Universal Production Music and to Storyblocks. You can find archived episodes on the conference website at www.greatplainsumc.org podcasts or on my website, toddseifert.com. Please email me with any questions or comments to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.